welcome to Exploring Filipino Kitchens. I'm your host, Nastasha Ali. This episode, we're going to the province of Cebu, in the central Visayas region of the Philippines, to talk about a much-beloved way of cooking with Luella Alex, author of a book called Hikai, The Culinary Heritage of Cebu. Cebu is largely regarded as the second major capital of the Philippines. It's a vibrant, deliciously rich, and incredibly storied region with so much history I could literally spend an entire episode delving into how this little group of islands basically made the world go round. And it's got to do with Magellan and the flourishing of world trade that followed those Spanish explorers and galleons. Even the name Cebu, I learned, comes from an old word for trade. Now, if that isn't a legitimate claim and window into the foodways of this region, I don't know what is. Cebuano cooking in itself, like many regional cuisines of the Philippines, is a reflection of its landscape, with this one long mountain range that cuts through the main island from north to south, dividing the region into yet smaller communities that each have their own distinct ways of preparing meals and various traditional food products. Cebu is known for a few of those, like the heart-shaped puso, or rice steamed in little packets made from these expertly woven coconut leaves that somehow keep every single grain inside. At least six different regional styles have been identified for this thing, and they're in Mrs. Alex's book. And then there's the famous sutukil, a combination of suba, tuwa, and kinilaw, which refer to the foods that are grilled for suba, made into soup for tuwa, and cooked with vinegar for kinilaw. I am so excited to dive into the regional cooking of Cebu. Let's get to it. So I'm Luella Eslao Alex, and uh, I'm 68 years old, a grandmother, and uh, I came to writing at quite late. I started writing when I was 59. I started writing for magazines and the local papers, but uh, later, the University of San Carlos, that's a local university here in Cebu, and quite well known, um, commissioned me to write uh, a book on churches, on old churches. So, and then I, I started writing about uh, the history of towns, so, like the history of Bantayan and the history of Mandawi City, that kind of, of writing. And then after about four or five books, I was commissioned by the university to write about the culinary heritage of Cebu. I accepted that, of course, because finally I was asked to write about food. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess they thought of that because, you know, the guys in the USC press are so used to eating at home that every time I'd prepare them a meal, they'd say, you should write a book, you should write a recipe book. And then finally they said, now we are commissioning you, you should write that book now. <laughs> that's, how I, that's how Hikai happened. <laughs> and then when I had to test, 
You know, I had to choose like 50, 50 recipes from the more than 200 recipes I gathered all over, all over Cebu. So I had to choose. And when I had chosen the 50 that I wanted to feature, I had to test them. I had to cook every dish. And who will eat all of this? I'd call all of the people in, in, the, university, in the university and tell them, okay, batch by batch you come and eat what I'm going to cook. I have to tell me it, it tastes good. See? So that's actually what happens. You know, I, I wrote about the history of Cebu. I wrote about our old churches. And then I wrote Hikai. And now they have commissioned me to write a sequel to Hikai. So I'm now deep into my uh, research for another book on Cebuano cooking. It's all about the delicacies, the bibingka, the ota, the budbud, the sumanba, and all that, and uh, as well as the savories also. So that's what I'm busy now with, you know, after hikai. So to circle back, what exactly does hikai mean, I asked. Yeah, I had to explain that to the people in charge of the San Carlos Press, even because they asked me why I had to choose hikai. said, so, you know, when I was researching and, and also from, from memory, when people say they want to prepare a meal, there was this one word that I heard from almost all the mothers or the cooks that I have encountered. And they would say, hikai, maghikai ko, ugpamahaw. You know, in Cebuano, that means I'm going to prepare breakfast. So the word really is a verb, which, which means to prepare food. So maghikai is to prepare food. And what kind of food? And then you say, maghikai kuog pamahaw, breakfast, or paniudto, that's lunch, or panihapon. The word itself is a verb that means to prepare a meal. But then it becomes a noun when it is used to describe a feast. You do not say, you, uh, for, for an ordinary lunch, you cannot call it a hikai. It's just paniudto. But if you spread several dishes and, and it looks like a feast or a banquet, then that is called a hikai. See, you know, as a noun, it is a feast. But as a verb, it is to prepare a meal. Yeah, the intricacies of the Cebuano language. <laughs> I just find it so interesting to explore how food, in this specific example, on the islands of Cebu, is like the snapshot of how people go about enjoying their everyday lives. There are cultures that love food, and then there are cultures who regard everything about sitting down to a meal, from growing food to harvesting and preparing and serving it, as something really special, beyond a physical necessity. It's food that doesn't simply allow you to function, but also manages to nourish you in different ways. It's the kind that feeds your belly and your soul. And for a lot of Cebuanos, even that very definition of self. It's about family ties and gathering together to celebrate the little and the big things that happen in everyday life. It's still a must for families here 
now, even now, to be together for at least one meal. Because, like, over there, people are already very busy here. People, kids have to go to school, and uh, most parents are there to give them breakfast. But lunch is always now, you know, you eat in the office or the children eat in school. And so for the evening meal, there is an effort to make it a real meal. I see a lot of young families now who are very conscious of that. That's, that's very good. Huh? I like it that they are serious about providing at least one meal where everybody is around. Now I admit that that sounds pretty idyllic, but it's still a really interesting way to learn about the significance of certain food traditions in Cebuano culture. There's just no way to exclude food from identity because you grow up in an environment where there's a lot of fresh fruit and vegetables and seafood around. Where you go to the local market and that trip rewards you with different kinds of rice cakes and that famous sutukil we talked about earlier. The killer combo that's so predominant in everyday Cebuano cooking. So next I ask, What's the real value of preserving these kinds of heritage recipes? That was one of the major reasons for writing the book. That's why I, I accepted the commission, because it was a chance to write down the original dishes. Because you see, a lot, a lot of dishes get, get bungled because of the many variations that people uh, do to it. I wanted to preserve, for example... This is how you make escabeche, or this is really how to make dinuguan, or this is really how to make adobo. Cebuano adobo is different from all the other adobos in the Philippines. And here again comes the adobo debate, my favorite part. If you're like me, you just want to know. So what makes that regional adobo different? What's in it? or excluded from it, that makes it different from the version I love. The Cebuano adobo does not have soy sauce. It's just vinegar, garlic, salt, and pepper. You marinate it, and it has no sauce. In the Tagalog regions, or everywhere else in the Philippines, the adobo has a sauce. May, may sarsa ang adobo. But in Cebu, it's dry. When, it, when the meat has absorbed all of the marinade, they add oil and it is fried uh, in slow fire until, until the meat caramelizes and it develops an overall golden color. That's the adobo. And the smell of that, the smell permeates the whole house and everybody... As with life, I've mostly been rewarded with an openness to different kinds of adobo. Different flavors, different textures. It's a nice analogy to how we also grow in life, where you just got to be open to ideas and beliefs that are different from yours. You have to believe that everything just comes together in the end, like a bubbling pot of adobo on the stove. And when you hear that click of the rice cooker, get a whiff of freshly steamed rice, just as it comes out the little hole in the rice cooker pot. You lean against the fridge and you think, it's fine. Things will turn out just fine. So now that we've been introduced, I asked Mrs. Alex if she could tell us what kinds of flavors to expect with Cebuano cooking. <laughs> 
the Cebuanos are like purists. The Cebuanos do not like too much salsa sauces. They do not like that. Like they prefer their food grilled, fried, and of course there's the quinilao, which we all like. The quinilao, which is like the ceviche, and then. And then there's tinola, which, as many Tagalogs are familiar with, usually means chicken tinola, that soupy, gingery chicken stew. But in Cebu, they like their fish stew. And that fish stew is also called tinola, although most Cebuanos call it tuwa, that middle part of the su to kill, tuwa. Basically, a soup of ginger, garlic, fish in this case, and a few other seasonal flavorings. In her book, Mrs. Alex adds a helpful note, like a little fun rhyme to help you remember what each of these things mean. Su to kill is read as shoot to kill. And that's actually what people say when visitors ask for what the local Cebuano food is. They just go, su to kill. It's Filipino humor, and I just love it, as most other visitors do. Anyway, going back to that fish stew. Like, for a fish soup, they would like to see the fish. They don't want to put in other things in it, except, of course, uh, ginger and um, onions and uh, tomatoes. But that's all they put in a fish tinola. And then all the other things, uh, you know, floating in it can be distinguished from the fish because they like their, their soup clear. And then there's escabeche. The real Cebuano escabeche is just ginger and garlic, and they put onions in it. And the sauce is not like the Chinese sweet sour fish, which is thickened with cornstarch. The Cebuano escabeche has no cornstarch. It's just the vinegar, the sugar, and the salt. So you can still see the fish when it is served. There again is that defining characteristic of Cebuano cooking that I've noticed so far, that need to keep ingredients intact. I wonder, where did that preference for seeing those ingredients intact for entire pieces of fish, for example, or whole vegetables, begin? And then on top of that... Of course, there's the preference to put ginger in everything. Because the Cebuanos do not like langsa. In, in the Philippines, that is the fishy taste or the gamey taste of meat. Like in beef, like Cebuanos do not like beef because they think it has a smell. Unlike pork, which is to them the tastier meat. So, yeah, those are, those are the quirks, I think, of the Cebuanos. And they put ginger in everything, as I said, even the, in their putumaya, which is... Uh, uh, glutinous rice that's steamed with coconut milk, they put ginger there. I don't know why, but they like the hint of ginger in the puto. They put ginger in the tinola, they put ginger in the nilatan, which is like a pork stew or beef stew or, or whatever meat that you boil and make into like bulalo. Our bulalo version has ginger. Everything that we cook almost is ginger because the Cebuanos do not like langsa. So I think that's why they put ginger in everything. That's an interesting thing to note. 
And so now I'm also wondering, on top of this preference for seeing ingredients cooked whole, is this really why ginger is so ubiquitous in Cebuano food? It's amazing to think about how this penchant for cooking with it, for this particular flavor preference with ginger, it just builds over time with the cycle repeating itself every time someone teaches another person how to cook. That's it. Because you can taste the main ingredients. And another example of this understated simplicity that the dishes from Cebu highlight really well is the utan bisaya. The utan bisaya is like the bulanglang of the Tagalogs. It's really, I think, a Filipino vegetable dish. But the difference is in the Ilocano region or the Pangasinan region, they put bagoong. And in the Tagalog regions, they put patis. The Cebuanos only put salt. <laughs> and it, but it's the same group of vegetables. It's still eggplant and a little um, squash, okra, and string beans with lots of uh, malungay, kamungay here, which is moringa. And yet, the Cebuano utan bisaya, when you serve it, you can see all of the vegetables clearly because the soup is clear. Nothing is added to muddy the, the soup. They still want their soup clear. So it only has uh, salt, but then usually they put a piece of dried fish. That's all that they will put for flavoring, but they do not mix it like stir it too much because then the broth will not be clear. They all, even with Utan Bisaya, they want their soup clear. What a great example of the kind of country cooking that might look pretty simple on the outside, but really needs some serious mastery. Keeping individual vegetables whole and perfectly cooked through in a single dish, that requires precision and skill the kind that you can only learn by doing something again and again. You could do that by maybe staging at a restaurant in Napa Valley, California, or you could learn from a seasoned cook in the province of Cebu by making a whole lot of braised vegetables. Maybe intrinsically it's good for vegetables not to be stirred too much. That's how we can explain it, I think. Because my father was uh, from Pangasinan, and I learned how to cook pinakbet that way. You put it in a pot or a container, and then you do not stir it. You arrange it according to the length of time it will take for the vegetables to cook. So the hardest ones at the bottom, all the way up, and then you put in all of the tomatoes, and then, and then pour bagoong over it and close the pot. Because it's nice to look at when you can still see all the vegetables distinctly. Next, we find out about an old culinary text, unique to Cebu. In the first few pages of Hikai, Mrs. Alex writes about a book called Lagda sa Pagpangluto, written by a local named Maria Ralios. Ah, Lagda sa Pagpangluto. 
That's a book that was a recipe book written in Cebuano, in the Cebuano language, in 1924. That's barely how many years after the, the Filipino woman uh, had, was given the right to vote. Since Hikai was a project of the University of San Carlos, so they opened up all the resources of the library to me. And there is such a thing here as the Cebuano Study Center. They have collected so many publications, so many books about Cebuano culture no? and history. It's a specific uh, part of the library. And one of the professors who is also uh, who is also the manager of USC Press told me that somebody just donated an old recipe book from the from 1924. So I said, "Where is that? It's in the Cebuano Study Center." The great grandson found a copy and thought that it would be best preserved if it is in the university library. So they they lent me the book. I was so I was so honored. It was such a privilege to hold the book that that old. And I had, wow, I can only imagine. And I had to read it. It was written by um, Maria Ralios, who was a very amazing woman. She was the widow of the first mayor of Cebu City at the turn of the century during the American era. And she, she ran a theater. She had apartments built, and she had it rented. She was very enterprising. And she raised all of her children alone, because the husband died early, as I said. And in the meantime, she was collecting recipes. And she wrote Lagda sa Pangpangluto when she already had grandchildren. When I read through the book, I can see that all of the food that I grew up in was really there. I mean, you know, like in the 1920s, they were cooking these things. My grandmother was a home economics teacher, and she was teaching at that time, you know, when the book was published. And all of the food that was described there were the ones that my Lola was serving us later, you know, in the 50s, in the 60s. It was really an amazing find. So I totally can't help but get swept away by these stories of old cookbooks and regional cuisines of yore. I think it's fair to say that for those of us who look to the past to better understand our present and future, these kinds of cookbooks are a treasure trove. And so it happened to be the 90th year after the book was published. This was when Mrs. Alex was in the final stages of writing Hikai. So I said, I should dedicate this to Maria Ralios. You know, she was a woman who was really far ahead of her time. You know, when most women were just staying home, their lives revolved around the family and the home. She had to have the feeling that she was happy to be rediscovered. That's such a strong testament to tradition to the kinds of food traditions that are passed from one generation to another. To be honest, I know that even for a lot of Filipinos who grow up in Manila, this kind of cooking, where the actual food served and the ways that they're made are so inherently family-oriented, 
it can be a bit unfamiliar. And that distance from family food traditions, you know, like when your parents remember something they had when they were little, it's multiplied if your family left the Philippines and eventually raised you, the person listening, someplace else. That connection, it's not always there, even if you have it at home quite a bit. But these old recipes, like the ones from Cebu, those are time-tested, and they've got this air of mystery around them. Just think about how certain foods have been prepared the same way time and time again. I have trouble thinking about myself in those shoes, since I'm a product of my time, and I like to tinker and innovate on everything. But people did them the same way through generations, because those ways of cooking worked, and they knew they were good. Going back to Mrs. Alex, as she was reading this Lagda Pagpangluto and thought, this is exactly how I remember my grandmother making them. These kinds of notes, those preparations, they have to be preserved. It's a testament to how different families across different towns stick so strongly to a particular preference for how their soups and their vegetables and grains are prepared. I noticed that, for example, her recipe for leche flan, which is a very common dessert all over the Philippines, no? When I read her recipe, it was exactly how my grandmother did it and how my grandmother told me to do it. All the ingredients, the procedure, the amount for each ingredient was exactly what my Lola did. That alone is... Uh, too much of a coincidence for me. And then her recipe for her adobo, for example. Her adobo is really how adobong pinaoga is cooked in Cebu. So she must have gathered all of these things from so many people because I can still see the dishes being cooked until now. And it is a wonder that all these dishes, these recipes, have been handed down up to this time. Even her recipe for bibingka and the recipe for budbud, you know, budbud is suman. I think she tested all of these recipes because when you follow her recipes, it's a breeze to, to follow because she gives just the exact things to do. And, but she also does not give too much instructions because she presumes that you already know the rudiments of cooking and she's just telling you that this is how you do it if you want to cook this dish like that so so she she presumes you know how to slice ginger she presumes that you know how to slice uh, onions and tomatoes she just tells you you add half a cup of sliced tomatoes or one teaspoon of chopped ginger it's it's like that but the thing is it was written in Cebuano in the Cebuano language Wow, I love learning about these kinds of things, especially how they've become shaped over time. There's that strong history in every single dish, and it takes a bit of detective work to uncover it, like Mrs. Alex finding this book, but it's totally worth it. What's amazing, again, is that one of her daughters wrote a cookbook in the 50s, but this time it was in English, and when I was given a copy. I had to look through everything. She wrote all of her mother's recipes in English. 
And so it was validated in the daughter's recipe book. It's too bad that not, nobody in the later generations uh, took after the mother and the grandmother. And there goes the heavy hitter. Knowing that, unfortunately, later generations of the family haven't really taken up preserving those regional recipes. I feel strongly about this because, on the one hand, it's easy to compare and maybe even bemoan many Filipinos' experiences with these family recipes. You know, it's easy to say that's too bad that Italian or French families, for example, have that strong tradition of passing it down from one generation to another. But I also personally think that the reason that that chain breaks is because younger people aren't interested in keeping the old ways alive because they don't have a way to relate to it. And if one way that young Filipinos are finding their way back to these food traditions is by writing about it or talking about it online or making videos about it on YouTube, those acts, those ways of showing they care of attending events and fundraisers that introduce non-Filipinos to the richness of our food culture, it all adds up, and it definitely paves the way. Next, a story about torta, a rice cake similar to the Tagalog bibinka that's a specialty in the province of Cebu. The, the town that's really famous for torta in Cebu is Argao. Argao, but I guess every town has its own version. Because you find people in Tuburan cooking torta, in the town of Sugod cooking torta. And torta is basically a cake. It's a tort. But in Cebu, the leavening agent is the tuba. The tuba is the, the toddy, coconut wine. So just a quick background on tuba, because I swear that I got so into this after I read a book called Discovering Tuba by an author named Arturo Pacho. This book is more than a description of what the drink is a truly native Philippine liquor made not from coconut water, as you might initially think, but from the sap that flows out of something called the inflorescence, or the actual flower bud of a coconut tree. So basically, if you're in the Philippine countryside and you see these long bamboo poles kind of stretched from one tree to another and tied together at the very tops of those trees, that's what it's for. It's for tuba making. And I love this. It's so distinctly Filipino to see these lightweight bridges, people crossing one tree to the next to collect sap from these coconut flowers, which are then turned into this incredibly tasty, powerful drink called tuba. It's fermented with airborne yeast, the very definition of something locally produced. And the traditions surrounding tuba are fascinating to learn about. Going back to Tarta, so they may, instead of yeast, they use tuba. So they let it rise overnight. And then they use it the next day. And then what else does make it cebuano? Ah, the lard is not butter, but the pork lard. You know, I once told this story about torta and the lard. A famous, I don't know if you know Ambeto Campo, the historian. And I do, actually. 
I ventured on getting his series of 12 books compiled from years of writing a column on Philippine history. Such an interesting point of view. So he went to Cebu, and we were together in a church convent because when he was chair of the National Historical Institute, they placed a marker on the church. So there was a big party in the convento and refectory. So he says, Loy, what do I eat here? Which is safer for me to eat, the torta or the chicharron? So I said, you know, Ambet, for every kilo of pork rind, they only get 228 grams of chicharron. So what happens to the rest? That it becomes lard, you know? And so, yes, it becomes lard, and it is bought by the people in Argao next town to make into torta. So with the torta that you're holding, there's, there's pork lard, there's uh, egg yolks, sugar, and flour. So I guess you're better off eating the chicharron and not the torta. So he had a big laugh, and he said, thank you for saving my life. <laughs> and then you have sugar, pa, see? You know, in the next book that I'm coming out with, the torta is going to be featured big time because nowadays some bakers already use yeast to make it rice. But I still found some torta makers in Argao. There's one torta maker who still uses lard and tuba to make her torta. And she bakes it in an, a clay oven. In this day and time, there's somebody who bakes with a clay oven. Can you just imagine that light, spongy, coconut yeasty dough enriched with lard and egg yolks? And so that's it. And the egg yolks, usually the egg yolks in all our recipes for desserts, this is attributed to the use of egg whites in making the palitada or the mortar for the stones. Because there was no cement in the 16th, 17th century. And remembering that Mrs. Alex actually started by writing about churches in Cebu, this is an important thing to note. So with the use of so much egg whites, you can imagine all the housewives looking at all the egg yolks that are not being used. So they must have thought, we'll use this and make make dessert. <laughs> make, let's think of dishes to make using egg yolks. And so you have the torta, you have the leche flan, you have the yemas, uh, brazo de Mercedes, everything that uses mostly egg yolks. Where there is a big church, a big old church, you would be sure that there is a tradition of making desserts using egg yolks. And documenting these traditions is absolutely critical. Making this information also accessible to more people, I'd probably say even more so. Because even if, you know, the Philippines is rich with pioneers and advocates for preserving these traditional foodways, like Mrs. Alex does for her hometown of Cebu. The other regions are just as interesting, I'm sure. It's just that I have made it my life and life's work now to talk, to, to write about Cebuano history, Cebuano culture. Somebody has to do it. <laughs> so I asked, how does Mrs. Alex see these efforts of preserving our culinary traditions played out? What does she see in the future of these folks who persist with preparing suman or budbud or torta, for example, in the traditional ways? And 
how do we get young people to see the real value of keeping these food traditions alive? And I guess re-engaging them to uncover that sense of pride, a love for Filipino food that spans not just the actual foods we eat itself, but around to the culture and the ways of life surrounding how that food is prepared and served and shared. This is something that I worry about because, as I wrote in the book, there's such the proliferation of foreign dishes coming into our place. You know, the malls, when another mall opens, I'm, I cringe because I know there's going to be more Italian shops, more Thai, more Indonesian food be, being served in all of these places, and more Japanese restaurants coming out. And uh, I, I don't think the ordinary Cebuano can resist all that. And now, with the older generation, I'm comfortable that they still, they still would prefer real Cebuano food. But with the younger generation, I don't think we can stand the onslaught of foreign influences. And so that's why I, I'm writing about the culinary heritage of Cebu. I'm writing about all this because it's, it's like my last stand. It's like a last stand in this fight. At least when somebody wants to, to cook the Cebuano way, at least there's a book that can tell them this is how it's done. Because most young people now would rather, you know, are more adventurous, like anywhere else in the world. You'd like taste new tastes. But I just hope that if, if I wrote everything down and it is there for people to go back to, then somewhere even 20, 50 years from now, if somebody wants to cook humba or wants to cook adobo, they will still be able to do it because it is preserved in a book. See, because I, I'm not so optimistic at all. That's the sad part, Nastasia. That's the sad part because you would rather eat something exotic, or something Frenchy, something uh, American, because it's there and it's so easy, it's so accessible, and it's kind of, it's very affordable. And with families now, they have uh, the mother and the father working, and so they go home, and, and the help is hard to get by now. Who is there to cook at home? The mother is out there working. When she arrives, she's, she's tired. So she just heats something that, you know, she bought from outside. But still keep the tradition of eating together, but whether it's Cebuano that they're cooking, they're, they're eating, I'm not so sure. It really pierces through my heart now, listening to this particular part of our interview. pierces because this idea that reality makes you optimistic is real. 
because I understand that this is the reality that all regional foodways have today, whether you're in the American Low Country or on the island of Cebu. There's no stopping the swell of progress that brings work to the area and keeps people employed. No changing the fact that, yes, we do want a variety of foods. And to be honest, this global plethora of foods that I can literally eat anytime in itself is so visible where I live in Toronto, I can't blame the people in Cebu or at any place in the Philippines for that. But what I think is really the takeaway here is that alongside our growing penchant for buying and partaking of all these kinds of foods from all over the world, even if it's just getting takeout from a shop at the mall, we do need people like Mrs. Alex to remind us that regional Filipino cuisine does have to be recognized and it deserves a place in the mall. And I kind of find it funny because this is a particularly Filipino thing. And so I want to just take a minute to give some context around this. I personally have long held an opinion that what these different kinds of regional foods need is the right marketing strategy, something that can be replicated over time and kind of with the right amount of gloss to make it fresh, to make it desirable. That means it needs the right people. People, for example, like JP Anglo, whose chain of restaurants called Sarsa is hugely popular in the Philippines. And yes, his restaurants are in the mall because that's where people go. There's a lot that goes into that formula for success in itself, like finding the right audience to become ambassadors for your product and having this diligence with promoting and preserving Filipino foods. Those are two big ones to remember. Imagine a food court filled with these well-executed regional Filipino specialties created by people who took the time to research how these foods were traditionally made, perhaps tweaking them a little bit to standardize or modernize it, but keeping the soul of that cooking alive. Man, I would go to that mall and brag like crazy to everyone I knew about it. It needs the right people to drive it, and many, many collective efforts to bring that idea and those foods to life. And if the sourcing of those ingredients and food products sold at those establishments, if that was done sustainably, with respect and a dedication to keeping those traditional food producers going, it would come full circle so easily. There's something um, I'm so happy about when um, Hikai came out because there were a lot of local buyers. So I hope, you know, I'm really contributing to the preservation of this particular part of our culture, for the culinary part. I really hope that, you know, with Hikai, I brought back interest in our local cooking. And I hope, you know, others will follow. When you eat an old dish, it's not just the food because the food brings uh, brings out memories, so you have this kind of warm feeling of eating something that your grandmother cooked before, and then you shared with the whole family before. So now, if even if we are scattered all over the world, when we eat something, we all remember. Like my Lola's escabeche, my my cousins would always say. When we eat escabeche cooked like Lola's, 
we always think of her and think of the family meals we had together when she was still alive and she was still cooking. See, so it's that the, the food brings warm memories. And so it's not just the eating, but the remembering that makes it more flavorful. It's so Filipino, you know. We gather around food. We celebrate with food. We show our affection with food. It's all about food. <laughs> with us Filipinos, it's all about food. And family, of course, to share it with and friends. My warmest special thanks to Mrs. Luella Alex for this interview. Though we recorded a few months ago, what we talked about is pretty timeless, and I hope that you'll get a copy of her book, Hikai, because it really is a treasure trove of stories and information. It's available online through thekitchenbookstore.com, or if you know someone visiting the Philippines, go ahead and ask them to bring you home a copy. Our theme music for this episode is by David Sesday, segment music by Eric and McGill, Podington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Visit exploringfilipinokitchens.com to find full transcripts of all the episodes thus far. I'm so happy to finally have them ready, and a special thanks to Anthony, based in the Philippines, who prepared these and got them ready for you all to check out. Come back next month for another episode of Exploring Filipino Kitchens. At maraming salamat. Thank you for listening. <music>